Hey there, and welcome to episode number 46 of the Craftish Podcast. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio, offering hands-free inspiration while you're making your next handmade thing. So I am a lover of books, but I can't really read as voraciously as I would like to just because, you know, things like jobs and family and, you know, just being busy. But that doesn't mean that I can't intake the books in a different way via audiobook. And so that is why it is so amazing to see all of the titles offered by Penguin Random House Audio. And they've actually created an entire playlist just for us crafters. And you can find it at tryaudiobooks.com slash crafter. And while you are there, you will be able to download a free audiobook called Ivy and Inky the Butterfly by Johanna Bosford. It's a really fun for all ages magical tale, so be sure to check that out at tryaudiobooks.com crafter. This week on the show, my guest is knitting author Wendy Bernard. Her book, Japanese Stitches Unraveled, is out on stands now. Even though Wendy and I work in the same industry genre, we somehow have never directly crossed paths before, and I have really no idea, Um, but we did for the conversation for this podcast, and during that chat, we discussed what the impetus was for her major career change to becoming a knitting author, uh, her life as a working mom, and why she enjoys the book writing process so much. So let's meet Wendy now. Wendy Bernard, thank you so much for being on Craftish. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It has been years and years and years since our paths have crossed. When, when would that would have been? Well, I, you know, I was just thinking about it, and I, I don't remember the year, but I was actually on your Nitty Gritty show a long, long time ago, and the your guest was Annie Modisette. Wait, you were on, but you weren't a guest. No, I wasn't a guest. I was I was a knit, knitster. A knitster. Sorry, I sat on the couch with two other yeah. ladies. Yeah. And we just sort of knitted Annie's thing, and you guys did the show, and, you know, we were kind of the, the knitsters, I think, as you called it. And yeah. Oh, the my goodness. Yeah. That would have been maybe... 2008? No. Oh, was it that late? I think it might have been <laughs> earlier than that. Um, Probably 2000 and five or six yeah maybe i mean it could have been 2008 annie was on more than once but um oh wow and i would just like to stop and send extra love to annie right now who is fighting stage four cancer and just lost her husband so listeners out there if you can just know that it's a lot it's a lot so if you can just take a moment to send all of your healing happy peaceful thoughts her way um i would most certainly appreciate it because she is one hell of a lady for sure so you started as a knitster you're in southern california which is where we shot that show did you grow up there Mm, well kind of i mean i we I was born in Minnesota, but we moved here when I was a kid, but we lived in uh, Northern California. And then we, when I was in um, junior high, I moved to Texas, to Houston, and then returned again when I was in, I don't know, ninth or 10th grade. And I've been here and actually in the same city ever since. Which is where? 
Um, I don't want to say exactly what city, but I will tell you I'm in Ventura County. Okay. Uh, not too far away from your studios. Um, oh, perfect. Perfect. Burbank, much further north and kind of beachside. So. I only ask you because we have sort of similar paths. I was born in Colorado, which I realize is not like Minnesota, but I moved. <laughs> I moved. Just to be clear, I do have a little bit of geographical knowledge of my country. Um, and then we moved when I was nine to Southern California. I grew up in Torrance. Um and then, of course, lived, you know, in the Valley and all the things when I was working in the entertainment industry. But now I live in Texas, so, and have for the past 15 years. So, just kind of funny how we kind of boomeranged. Um, and I love Texas. I, I don't know. I've not been to Austin, though. I'm assuming that's where you are, near near there. I am. Um, I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I lived in Houston. And all I remember, I, I love the people and made friends very easily. But the weather, oh, the humidity. It's awful. It's awful. It is the only thing that I don't li- like about living in Austin. There's a lot I don't like about living in Texas, but Austin yeah. itself is so creative and relatively diverse. And, you know, it's both a college town and the capital and the live capital, you know, music capital of the world. And it's it just got such a cool vibe to it. But man, you know, I'm a, I'm a, fair-skinned, freckly gal. Like, the heat and I are not friends at all. And so, that's definitely taken a long time, especially growing up in Torrance where, I mean, things have changed now. Yeah, It's gotten hotter now. But, um, you know, growing up, it was always just like 75 and breezy. It was just delightful at all times. So, it did, there was there was a little bit of a, like, weather curve for me here, for sure. Yeah, well, we definitely have 75 and breezy today. But I have to tell you real quick about Texas, and this is a true story. We all carried Aquanet in our purse. I mean, that just makes sense. I know. We needed hairspray. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that we didn't though in Southern California. To be honest with you. Well, we yeah, it was probably during the days with the the rock star, the men hair, or you know, remember the 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 guys they wore prettier makeup and outfits than we did you know and i think it was in the 80s when they had those big poofy bangs that were in yeah so we had the we had the sky high bangs so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah there was a lot of aquanet a lot of using the curling iron on wet hair yeah and then spraying and hearing the sizzle which <laughs> i don't know how that was okay i also don't know how sharing wet and wild eyeliners around a bunch a big group of girls was okay um gross <laughs> But we made it through. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's so funny. So were, yeah, you so, in, were you in Minnesota when your grandmother taught you how to knit? Oh, no. Um, I, that's, thank you for that question. Actually, it was Northern California. Uh, we moved when I was really little. Okay. And we lived near San Francisco. And my grandparents used to winter in a nearby city. And so we would go, and she had a, a mobile home <laughs> that they would bring. And I'd go into her mobile home, and we'd sit there. And uh, she had that old-fashioned sort of, oh, how do I describe it? It sits on the floor, and it's a folding thing. So if you reach your hand down, you'd probably almost go into it with your hand. And it's a, a folding thing, and it had brocade fabric. And yeah, inside, just like a knitting basket. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, you know, on the, it had a frame yeah. that folded. And she just reached down in there and had me yarn and needles and just taught me how to do just the very, very basics. And I just remember just knitting squares. And uh, Do you remember yeah. what kind of yarn that you learned on? Do you remember the brand? 
It was probably Red Heart or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. Because like, that's a lot of people's answers. It's so funny. So Trisha Malcolm, who runs uh, Vogue Knitting, as you know, uh, she she has this theory that you always remember the yarn that you learn on. Oh um, yeah. And yeah, so it's it, interesting it, if that'll be the case now because it's so much easier. I don't feel like, you know, in the 80s and the 90s that there was as easy of access to all these, like, phenomenal yarns. And most certainly not, you know, the way that we can uh, nab an international hand-dyed yarn now, too. So it'll be interesting to see if, peop- if you know, especially kids who learn how to knit now have that same, I don't know, brand awareness, maybe? I don't know. All I know is that my daughter... And even my husband, they know enough about knitting so that if I have a project that's on the needles and really, you know, a precarious situation where stitches might fall off, they know how to pick it up in such a way that it's in perfect condition when they place it in another spot. Well done. That's some good training. Yeah. And then I think of my daughter and she knows how to knit, but there's always yarn around. And so she obviously... You know, she's kind of rebelling and doesn't want to pick up the yarn. But I, I'm really curious, and so I'll pay attention to that as she grows up, and I'll ask her if she has any awareness of what types of yarn she learned on her, her mom knit with and all that stuff. I wonder if it's different, though, when your mom's a professional knitter. You know, like, it's it's attached to a yeah career so it may not be as novel as you know sitting with the folding brocade basket in you know yeah yeah she'd be eating little pickles and uh salami and at lunch she'd have a beer (laughs) it was great (laughs) i like your grandma (laughs) i like her a whole lot did did she um do you remember do you remember liking knitting at that age? I, 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 my mom tried to teach me at the exact same age, and I hated it. I, I ended up picking up crochet, oh, um, yeah. but that. knitting for whatever reason, it just I, I think my maybe I just wasn't dexterous enough. I don't even know. But um, do you remember taking to it right away? Oh yeah, um, I remember it, and I, it was mostly I associated the, that that activity with my grandmother, and then as I sort of put it down, and I did do a lot of crochet. Now that I think about it, now I I self taught with that, um, but I didn't really knit again until high school, and I had a boyfriend, and I remember wondering what to to do for Christmas, and I knit him this super long scarf, and it was all just sort of different colors, and I'm sure it was all red heart stuff, and um, it it rolled, it yeah. rolled. I didn't know to put a stocking it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just stocking it. And I remember I had this picture of him and he had you know, wrapped it around and around and around his neck and it was still really long and it was just a big roll, you know. Yeah, it was a failure. <laughs> but then well, I never knew again until I was an adult, you know. It's kind of I mean, odd. you could have just seamed the ends together and had it roll and just called an eternity scarf. And I didn't even think of it. It was just, you know. <laughs> Let's go back to the 90s and talk to yourself. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, so you picked it up. So you had your, you know, you picked it up in high school, which actually is kind of rare for that time period. It's not, it's not rare now. I wasn't, I was, I'm older than you. I was um, crocheting in the seventies and this, this scarf would have been probably just like 1980, 1979. Okay, so maybe it was a little less rare. In the in the 90s, like it was, I mean, I remember I wasn't knitting then, but I was crafting and always making things. And I was always the, like, you know, I was the anomaly that was not, hand making was not 
necessarily was not necessarily cool in any respect. Well, I know. I think my my sister, my little sister's, you know, she's not so little anymore, but she's more your time period. And I think about it, so not crafty, not into that at all. Music, that kind of thing, but. Um, not crafting, not like me and my mom and my grandma. We were nuts. We did everything. And, and to this day, I, I'm sitting here um, agonizing over Thanksgiving because I want to make handmade uh, napkin roll. What do you call that? Napkin, napkin rings. Holders? Napkin rings. Yeah, yeah. rings, rings. And, you know, it's some, still summertime, and I'm thinking, oh, I've got to collect uh, pine cones. When I know I can buy some, but I've got to collect them. i got to do this. i got to do that. Because it's got to be a legit, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you're that way, but I, it's so crafty, it's crazy, it's uh, um, kind of a So I don't have the forethought that you do. So I oh. am that, but I'm that like 24 hours ahead of time. So oh. there's so there's like a, it's like a game show. <laughs> like there's like a, there's a time element with me. So I'm probably yeah, not going to harvest, but I'm going to, I'm going to get it done. <laughs> I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to get it done. It's funny though with, you know, you mentioned your, your sister in music, that was, you know, during that period, that's when, when grunge was really taking off and, and you, and which was highly influenced by punk and both of those genres have a lot of craft by necessity involved. Now people wouldn't have called it that, but if you think about like the zine culture or also just, you know, clothing, clothing, like safety painting and, and, you know, ripping up and making sure that your jeans were dirty enough and scuffing up your docks and all of that kind of thing did. There was a lot of like hand crafting involved. Mm -hmm. Yep. You get the emery board out for your jeans. Yep. It's a good way to get the knees kind of rough, nice, you know, emery board. So so at, at what point did you start designing? Hmm. Well, okay, what happened is I had this career. I had a great career. I was a marketing director for a big, big company out here. And um, I always, you know, wanted a family and I had all these problems. And long story short, I ended up uh, having a very, very premature daughter. And she was so premature that there's no way that I couldn't quit my job and just, you know, change lanes, you know. So um, I found myself at home after many years of being a corporate person. um, And I started a blog out of boredom. And I don't know why I started knitting. I was was probably because I was pregnant. And I was thinking, you know, I gotta wear I gotta make a hat or something. Sorry about the the noise. Yeah, you can go ahead and close that if you want. Um, Do you do you want? um, Do you? Is that the knit and tonic blog, or did you have one yeah. before that? So, no, at that point, there weren't a ton of knit related blogs because I remember when we started Nitty Gritty, the first couple of seasons, we didn't have actually probably the first four or five seasons we didn't have guests based on blogs it was really only at the towards the end whereas now that would be the first place that you would go so what you know there were a few you know starting in in maybe about 2001 they are really few and far between mostly people were on boards um what what gave you the sort of wherewithal to kind of channel your energy in that way well um I, like I said, I was so bored and I probably was online. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I was probably online looking for patterns, knit patterns, and probably happened upon a blog or two. And I would read them and I, I think I was so 
Oh gosh, I was so alone. I remember being up at night and worrying and stuff. And um, I think that I had this need to tell people what was going on without telling them what was going on. You understand what I mean? I, it was, you know, I'd start, I fell into this knitting thing and it was giving me some sort of peace. And so then I just started talking about that just, just as a way to express myself. And, um, and I started designing it just because I would knit other people's patterns and I would change them. It was just something I thought, you know, Hey, I don't, I don't really like this sleeve. I'm going to change it. And then pretty soon, uh, when I would talk about, um, the, it was kind of, not really, it was kind of a redesign cause I didn't know how to design. You know, um, I would talk about it on the blog and people would say, oh, would you write up a pattern of your own? And it just sort of organically happened. I, I'm not a trained designer. I, I'm self-taught. And uh, before I knew it, a literary agent who read knitting blogs contacted me. I'm sorry. I don't know why he's doing that. And, and um, next thing I knew, um, I had a book deal. It was crazy. So was this, was this Melanie Fallick that, that found you? No, it was an agent. It was an agent because Melanie Felix. So you've done you've done a, a few books with her before mm -hmm. she before she left that part of the business, and she is known for having beautiful books, like beautiful and classic mm -hmm. books. Like that's a great way to enter into the publishing world in any way, shape, or form. D did you dive into working with her right away, or the agent um, actually? Uh, we wrote up a proposal and I had a few different offers. Yeah, those I were mean, the days. Yeah, I had, I had three different really good offers. And so um, I investigated and I had known about Melanie because uh, I, I had some of her books. And I thought, well, this is the most beautiful book. And if I could write a book that's just beautiful, I'd be happy with one, one book you know and so that was custom knits and it was a big hit it, it it's a really cool book and um you know and then now there's seven or six going to be seven probably and it's it's a lot of fun to write books it's it's you know it's hard as you probably know it's not I find it torturous <laughs> I find it fun at the beginning Oh, yeah. no, and then towards the end, every single time, I'm like, what have I done? <laughs> Why do I keep doing this to myself? <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah. Uh, at what point did you turn out? So at that point, book deals were... That was a great time to be writing mm -hmm. knit books. You know, it was publishers were really open and excited about knitting books. I remember that was around the time where at one of, you know, the craft conventions, it might have been CHA, uh, I don't remember which one it was, my publisher actually had a party at Tau in Vegas just for knitting authors. Like, it was a different time then. Different. Now you're lucky if you can get a drink ticket at the at the Holiday no. Inn. <laughs> But but it was a, really, a lot. It, it was a really fun time to be an an author because people were still really buying books with patterns in them. Um, yeah. But the, you know there was a shift for better or worse. You know because of the ease of writing blogs. You know and the grow the growth growth of social media, and then and then of course Ravelry. There was more and more patterns available. So. Books started, you know, book sales began to wane, as did offers. But really, 
and really the only books that continue to do well are books of stitch patterns. Um, I know those are the only ones that I still keep my eyes open for, but I, you know, and part of that might just be the, be the design aspect, but was this a conscious decision after you'd written garment books and based on that trend, that change that you might've seen? No, it was, it was more another accident, I'd say, um, because what, what happened with all the previous books is, I don't know if you know, but I, I do a lot of top-down knitting and a lot of it's in the round. And so mm-hmm. whenever I, I would do a garment, I would have to convert it a stitch pattern so that it would work for my design. And I just sort of had this idea. Um, why don't I make it available for knitters because it hasn't been done before. So I approached my publisher and they thought, oh, this is a great idea. And uh, that's when the up, down, all around Stitch Dictionary came to fruition. And that that book I'm really, really thrilled with because it's a reference book. It's one of those book books that somebody will buy and it'll be on their shelf probably forever. You know, the garment books would probably be donated after a time because they no longer refer to the patterns but a stitch pattern book you know it's it's a it's a pretty much a lifetime purchase when you think if you continue to knit obviously so so it was just one of those things that I thought of and you know now there are three writing stitch pattern books is a lot more technical yeah um than writing pattern books and of course there's a lot there's a technical aspect to designing of course but you can that's a whole other topic but you are purely dealing with numbers was mm-hmm. was that a shift for you i mean if you were in marketing you dealt with both numbers and the creative did you do you feel like those two your background really lent to that shift or or did it not feel that different to you than your other books uh didn't feel that much different to tell you the truth um I, the, the, the one thing I did have to do with these stitch patterns, pattern books is to um, kind of separate the creative part with the technical part. So I couldn't do both things at once. Um, I noticed I had to have a brain shift to work on the technical stuff. So when I would be choosing palettes and, you know, make, designing the few patterns that are in there or selecting patterns that I want to convert, I would do that in one chunk that might last a month or two. And then I would have to switch my brain over to technical stuff and, you know, chart them and figure them out and all that stuff and have con- conversations with my technical editor her name's Sue McCain. She's amazing. She's been with me since the very first book. So I would I would kind of reserve my brain, you know, energy for the technical, for very specific tasks and stay on that task for however many months it would take me to do it. Because th- if I started thinking about the creative part, it wouldn't come easily. Mm-hmm. So it was just sort of a, one of those things that I'm really good about doing. It's kind of like following a diet in a way. I don't know. You just have to really focus on it and, and decide that's just, you know, this is how I'm going to work right now. What part of writing a stitch pattern book is editing and curating and what part is straight up invention? Well, um, the editing and curating part would probably be where you have your vision of what type of stitch patterns you, you want to have in the book. Uh, let's face it, there's not a lot of new things anymore. You, you, you have to research other books and sources to cull together the, the stitch patterns that you want to be in your collection. So, so that part right there is just what it is. That's the creative part. 
And then the real technical part is when you have to uh, chart them to, to figure out how to make them go upside down. And you have to knit it, too. So every, every stitch pattern was knit, mm-hmm. you know, probably multiple times. And then there would be one really pretty one that would go toward the pile that would get photographed. Uh, so, you know, it's, it was actually pretty, it's kind of grueling. Sounds just very tedious. Yes. You know, I knit thousands of swatches at this point and I have them all in boxes and I have this dream that I want to sew them all together and make a giant Afghan. Do you, um, do you approach, do you do a lot of teaching? I used to, but I haven't in a long time. Do you encourage, were you always a swatcher? Um... Mm, I think I wasn't. I think that at some point I learned the, the hard way, like a lot of us. Yeah. And then I remember on my blog I would say things like, if you want it to fit, you need to swatch it. And if, it, if you don't care, don't bother. Um, but now I'm a, I'm a swatcher. I, I swatch everything. I swatch it twice. I'll swatch with color, different colors. And, um, you know, I save them. You know, so I know now instinctively if I reach for, let's say, Blue Sky Alpaca's sport weight, I know exactly what gauge I'll get, you know, for either size six or size five needles. Just most knitters who knit a lot know that. But it's, I think swatching is just one of those things. It's just like warming up and when you go on a run or you just need to try out the, the needles with the yarn and see if you switch out the needles. Does it change your, you know, your gauge or... Yeah, I, I don't know. Swatching is just one of those things that I'm, I'm a big cheerleader for. Um, and I always encourage people to do it. But then some people just have a different style and they don't want to do it. And they just decide that they'll... I think it was... Uh, was it Elizabeth Zimmerman who said that she would not swatch but just start a sleeve or... Yeah. That's that. kind yeah. of my philosophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. I also yeah. don't I also don't make a lot of things that are meant to fit. <laughs> I'm more of an accessories gal. Really cute projects though, I have to say. I'm all about the like accessibility of it. I want you to be able to create something in a little time so that you have a little win in life. And so if you're making a lot of smaller stuff that kind of is the swatch, it's not a huge deal to put yeah. it out. But if I were ever to make that, you know, top-down Icelandic sweater that I keep, you know, I live in Texas, as we've mentioned, so there's not a lot of motivation. But if I ever get there, like, I'm, I'm definitely swatching that because you don't... And also the yarn, you know, really, if you're buying yarn, it's so yeah. expensive. Yeah, and do. if you're working with a single ply, like, you know, most as Icelandic Lopi is, yeah. ripping that out is... A nightmare. Is not, is not optimal, for sure. It doesn't work. It's like mohair. <laughs> it doesn't work. Although, another nitty-gritty tip, if you f- stick it in the freezer... Does it really work? Yes, it does. Easier to rip out. Well, you know, I'm in California, so I'm kind of in the same boat, although I still knit a sweater now and again, but I never get to wear them. I just, you know, pose in them a couple times I and know. then dream. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and then when I go someplace cold, I always forget to pack them. I'm just not trained in that way. <laughs> I know. I don't even know how to wear a sweater. I see all these people at Rhinebeck wearing these great sweaters, and here I am, you know. I don't think I look good in them. I don't look good in them either. (laughs) I know. I think it's just a frame of mind, and we don't have it. Is it? I think it's because I don't have a torso. I I don't. 
you, but you're so tiny. So many. Mm, I don't have a torso. I have legs, <laughs> hips, and boobs. Nothing in between. So <laughs> it's hard for fabric to find places to go. Oh. Um, so I was really excited. I want to talk about your latest book because I was, I, I mean, all of your books, I was like, oh, that's brilliant. It's brilliant. But this one, I, you know, I used one of my childhood best friends lived in Japan for maybe you know, 16, 17 years and taught English and that kind of thing. And, you know, he would send me every once in a while, he would go in, he would get craft books for me and send them to me. And it's just my, my absolute, like, treat to get. And, you know, not necessarily, sometimes you can decipher the charts, and it's fine, you know, Um, but it it does take more of a commitment to sparkle motion that I don't always have. Um, So when Japanese stitches unraveled hit my, my doorstep, I was thrilled. Um, I would love to hear about this journey. So you clearly, you studied Japanese when you were in school, at least for a little while. So the culture in and of itself must have attracted you to start with. Is that correct? Yeah, I would. Well, actually I studied it in college. And so we had to take a language and I chose Japanese and I don't know why I chose Japanese. I sort of ended up in it, you know, and I loved it. I loved it. A lot of fun. I don't remember very much anymore because there's nobody to talk to. Um, but I've all, you know, I dated a Japanese guy too. And that was another thing. So um, I just always loved the food. I loved the aesthetic. You know, I'm, I'm sloppy and kind of crappy and the Japanese stuff is just nice and tidy and beautiful and I always thought of it as serene and all those nice words. And um, with with regard to this book, though, you know, just like you said, you'd get a craft book that's in Japanese and just like a box of candy or a brand new box of of Crayola crayons. Just, you know what I'm talking about Mm -hmm, with that? mm -hmm. Yeah, they don't, it doesn't, I, now correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe there's a separate word for knitting and crochet in Japanese. I I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't think there is. And so often the books interchange. I mean, it, it's very common for there to be knitting and crochet projects in the same book without oh, without without it being, you know, advertised that way. Oh, no, it's 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 I think they do distinguish it because I'm just right now as I'm talking to you, I'm pulling out a bunch of my Japanese books and some of them are just knitting books. And a couple of them have both knitting and crochet. Um and I, they're not really mixed up. They, they will have the cro- crochet in the back or the knitting in the back. So when you approach this book, did you just go buy all of the things, like go to your favorite Japanese bookstore, buy all of them, and just start decoding charts? No. Um, what happened, because I don't really have a bookstore that carried them anywhere near here. And I would hear about them and I'd research them online and they're really expensive. Yeah. And um, I would go to TNNA, which is the needle arts convention that would be twice a year. And there were, and I would sign books for my other books and there would be stacks of these Japanese uh, knitting books. It's my favorite uh, TNNA booth. Yeah. <laughs> Right, you know what I'm talking about. I know about. exactly what you're and talking about. And they were not cheap. No. They were beautiful. They're not um, so much beautifully bound or anything. They're paperback. And I would pick them up and I'd look through them and I'd go, oh, you know. And um, what happened, how did this happen? Well, I came upon a bunch of them, and I don't even know if I want to tell your listeners how I got them. You don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> sort of an accident. Let's just say it was sort of an accident okay. that somebody lent me a big stack of them and then forgot about it. I still have them. I guess I should return them. But I would look at these and just drool. And the problem was, were the charts. Uh, you know how in American books or Western books, you would see a chart that would have just the the repeat, the multiple. Let's say it's a repeat for flat pattern. It would, let's say, 10 stitches plus three, okay, just so that you could center the pattern. But with the Japanese ones, they'd have these huge charts and the, because they would include, they would just make it huge and you couldn't find where the repeat was. And that would bother me. And I'd call up my techno editor and I'd say, hey, Sue, Take a look at Paige, because she had these two. Oddly enough, we both had the same mistake happen to us. And she would look at them. She says, oh, da, 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 da. And she would tell me. And I would make notes. I'd use highlighter tape, and I would figure it all out. And I just was inspired. I said, you know what? Everybody talks about these Japanese books. I wonder if I could make a stitch pattern book with just converted patterns from the Japanese source. And my publisher said, oh, that's a great idea. And so that's what I did with this particular book, Japanese Stitches Unraveled. Do you have to contact anybody in Japan for, I mean, are any of these stitches intellectual property? How does that, how does that even work? How do you even approach that? They're not. And that's the thing. I mean, if I would be really sensitive to it, if a particular knit, knit designer had created a stitch pattern, sure, I wouldn't dare touch it. Um, but you know, the attorneys and all that at my book publisher, they said stitch patterns are in the, in the realm. You can convert them. I don't use any of their language. I don't copy anything, you know, um, proprietary from them or anything. Uh, so it's just like any knit designer that's listening right now or a budding one, they can use any of my stitch patterns and not give me any kind of um, knowledge. You know, I don't need to have any foreknowledge of it or anything or give them permission. It's just... It's just one of those things that's just out here in the, you know, in the universe. Hmm. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So what was the curation process like for, for this particular book? Well, this one, this is hard because they're, the, the stitch patterns are numbered in the Japanese books. They don't, they're not, they're not given any names. So I would identify the different books and I would say, okay, let's do number 42 on page 33. And then I'd look at it and I'd go, what does this look like? Because it was just number 42 and I'd have to come up with a name, you know, and all this stuff. So, so this would happen in three waves. I would first select the stitch patterns and identify where they were in which book. Or I would combine them because a lot of the time in Japanese stitch patterns, um, you'll see that they combine different elements to create one stitch pattern. So that you'd have a lot of mixture of, let's say, cables and lace. And sometimes I would just pull out a section and I would make that a stitch pattern. So a lot of it was just, you know, that process. And then the next process was actually getting down to the business of doing the technical aspects of it, figuring out how to make it in the round, how to make it, you know, flat the way I want it to, and then also how to make it upside down if it's applicable. Then the third part would be going through and giving them names and, in Japanese stitch patterns and ravel, it was kind of hard because I'm pretty creative, but not so creative that I can give everything a pithy name. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so did you, I mean, do you open it up to your blogosphere at that point? Start. Did I what? Do you open it up to your blogosphere at that point and just try to uh, get no, help? I, never, I know, I never talk about it. In fact, you know, regarding the blogs and my blog too is, you know, we have 
Ravelry, and then we also have Twitter and Instagram, and a lot of those social platforms have really taken the wind out of the blog sales. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not S-A-L-E-S, but Mm S-A-I-L-S. And um, I don't blog as much as I used to, and I don't have contact with my readers like I used to. Uh, Most of it is just sort of burped out, you know, in tweets or in real quick posts on Instagram. And and I've been lately thinking about blogs, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, I want to start that up again and have that community back. And, And it would have been a great idea that I shared parts of it to my blog readers. Um, but, uh, you know, it didn't happen that way. As a self-taught designer who's been in the industry for long enough to see how much it's changed, what advice, if anything, do you have for budding designers now? Um, I would probably tell them to turn off the social media a little bit and try not to feel the the pressure of having a famous knit pattern that um, makes a lot of money. You know, I think that if you kind of uh, be alone with yourself and create to find something that you like and that works for you, it's more important than trying to have a smash pattern. Um, I, I find right now that social media is sort of a... Um, I don't know. It it, it kind of makes people second guess their own instincts, and uh, I think that would be my advice: is to try to get away from that and and do something that's true to yourself, and then and then show it to people, and don't worry so much what they think. It's more important what you think, and and if it's the way you like it, because that's more of an expression of yourself rather than a me too and I'm doing this as well. How do you since you turned your craft into a career. How do you feed your creative well in a non-professional way now? <laughs> I, I do a lot of other crafts. Um, I paint. I do right now. I'm kind of dabbling in a- acrylics. I watercolor. I make candles. I bake. I, my, si- my, my sister, my daughter is a, a really wonderful artist and I'll go, um, to the studio that she works at one day a week. She's still in high school, but she she's being mentored by a man who's a, who's a like a living working artist. I'll go and I'll just sort of you know play with the paints or that sort of thing. And, you know, I go to the beach a lot. And I like to read. I like to write. I do a lot of non knitting creative things, and that feeds me because right now knitting is a job. Right. I think you understand what I mean by that. And. Uh, you know, and right now, though, lately, I have, since I've been further away from the last book, I've been knitting for myself again, and that's been a joy. And it's not always a joy when you have it as a career. So what I do to feed my creative self is to do other things than knitting. Really. Does it take you a little while to find your way back to knitting after you've finished a knitting book? Oh, yeah. It, like a year. It takes really? a, It takes a long time. Yeah, because when I'm knitting for a book, it's not easy knitting I'm not necessarily knitting what I want to knit and it's work (laughs) it's swatches it's you know a lot of thinking and you your joy kind of goes away a little bit the yarn is always here I always touch the yarn I always pull out my favorite skeins and look at them but the the it does take about a year to tell you the truth to to get come back to your first love so 
since you mentioned that there may be a seventh book in the works, does does that mean that you're in sort of that period of knitting right now, but getting ready to, or knitting for pleasure right now, but getting ready to ramp up into that cycle again? Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I'm going to have a discussion today with my editor, and uh, we'll see. Uh, it's we'll just see. Um, but right, I almost feel like there's a mourning period after. Um, I've been knitting for myself again and then having to kind of switch the gears and make it technical and thinking about every aspect of it rather than just knitting for fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nice though, because it's, it's good to make money from your knitting. It's good to publish a book. I mean, I'm so thrilled that there are books out there that, that I, you know, I'm in the library of Congress and I always thought I'd write a book and, you know, growing up and here I had, I've done it. Um, and I'm excited at the idea of, of doing again, it again. And it's not all me because I have a wonderful uh, editor. I have a great uh, technical editor. I've got a creative team. You know, I don't have to do everything for the book. I just turn in a manuscript and turn in the, um, the, the projects. And then from there, they take it and they, they lay it out and they do all this stuff. So it's not actual, like not super drudgery, but it, it does take away from the fun a little bit. It really does. But I like writing books. It's just uh, what I do. What do you hope that readers of your books or specifically your latest book, your choice, what do you, what do you hope they take away from the experience of a Wendy Bernard book? Oh, I just want them to make beautiful things that please them. Uh, that's why I give so many options for changing out collars or length of sleeves and then with the stitch pattern books. They can knit it upside down or in the round or flat. I just want them to feel like they are empowered uh, to create on their own and not have anybody hold their hand. Well, Wendy, it has been so nice to talk to you and catch up after all these years. And I, I really do love Japanese Stitches Unraveled. It's beautiful, and I can't wait to apply some of these stitches to some of my next designs. So thank you. Thanks, Vicki. For more information on Wendy Bernard and her book, Japanese Stitches Unraveled, go to her show notes page at vickihowell.com slash craftish. Okay, now it is time for our segment, What I'm Crafting-ish To. This is in partnership with Penguin Random House Audio, and it's just kind of a little corner of sharing of the audio entertainment that keeps me going through the week while I'm crafting or working or living or driving or all of the things. So for movies this week, you know, it's Christmas time, and so I, and I'm a sucker for all of the classic Christmas movies, and you know, always are looking for what's new out there. And Netflix actually has a couple of new ones, and one of which I watched with my nine-year-old daughter this week, and it's called The Christmas Chronicles, and it stars Kirk Russell, and there are even appearances by his stepson Oliver Hudson, and a cameo with his longtime partner Goldie Hawn, and um, it, you know what? It's just a great, fun, light-hearted Christmas movie. I really enjoyed it. If that is your cup of eggnog, you should check it out. I listen to several podcasts every single week, one of which is Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. They have panel discussions and they're just about anything that is pop culture related. It could be movies, it could be music, it could be TV, sometimes books, comic books, that sort of thing. This week, the focus was on Christmas music. And this was fun because, you know, I mean, you're not reinventing the wheel when you talk about Christmas music. That's what's really fun is being reminded of some of the great, you know, old standards, but also the cool 
covers by sometimes obscure bands of some of those old standards. So I really enjoyed this episode. It has me, you know, looking forward to revisiting some of the songs that I hadn't thought about, you know, probably since last year or way before that. So that is wherever you find your podcast. It's called Pop Culture Happy Hour. I am still hot and heavy for the audiobooks. I traveled this week, and so I'm actually, I've mentioned this in episodes before, I'm still listening to The Witch Elm by Tana French. It's a, it's a long book, and so I haven't mentioned it in a couple of weeks because I'm actually sort of um, in tandem also reading it. So I'll read when I'm before I'm going to bed, and then I'll pick up wherever I stopped off if I'm in the car or, you know, I was traveling. So on the plane this week, um, listening to the audiobook version. So every once in a while, I'll do that. And I'm enjoying both. It's a different experience, you know, having someone whisper in your ear than it is reading it yourself. But I'm really enjoying that. So uh, that's The Witch Elm by Tana French if you like um, psychological thrillers. I also am about halfway through, I started yesterday, I guess, um, the um, book You Are a Badass Every Day by Jen Sincero. So I actually interviewed Jen last year for the release of her full-length book, You're a Badass at Making Money. And I just, it's such a great conversation. Um, I highly recommend going back into the Craftish archives and listening to that. But this is actually the audiobook for her bite-sized book, You Are a Badass Every Day. And it's great because it only takes about an hour and a half to listen to. So like I said, I just started it and I'm at least halfway through and that was with barely any listening time. So it is filled with inspiration, prompts and guidance to your sort of personal transformation track. And Jen always has some zinger quotes that either act as smart reminders or otherwise just kind of blow the mind. And one of my favorites from You're a Badass Every Day is this one. She says, there's no such thing as stressful situations, only stressful ways of perceiving situations. Lucky for you, you are in control of your own thoughts. So the next time a challenging situation presents itself, take a pause and make a conscious choice to meet it with curiosity, humor, or the knowledge that this too shall pass. So this book is filled with just little nuggets like that. So if you're looking for something inspirational that doesn't take a ton of time, check out this. And you can find both um, You're a Badass Every Day and The Witch Elm at tryaudiobooks.com or wherever you find your audiobooks. I would love to know what you're listening to or watching this week. So please reach out to me on Instagram or Facebook. You can find me at Vicki Howell. And I spell my name with an I-E. So it's V-I-C-K-I-E-H-O-W-E-L-L. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to rate or review or and review and or on um, Apple Podcasts. That really, really does help us be able to be found by other listeners. Craftish is a Campbell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. If you are a knitter or a crocheter out there, or if you know one, please be sure to check out my subscription box service, Yarnier, for the perfect gift for either them or you for the holidays. You can find Yarnier at Yarnier, it's Y-A-R-N-Y-A-Y, that's Y-A-Y, Yarnier.com. All right, that's it for this week. Check your feed next Thursday for 
our newest episode of Craftish. In the next episode, I will be speaking with Yvette Garfield. She's the founder of Handstand Kitchen, a kid-focused cooking company. Until then, make sure to take a little time, especially during this busy holiday season, to be creative, take a little time for yourself, breathe in, craft out.